Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. It's award season at Below the Line, and this is the third of 12 planned episodes where panels of film industry professionals discuss the nominees in their category of expertise. Today, we're talking about visual effects, and I've got two returning guests. Ken Secchi, your visual effects credits include The Matrix Revolution, Superman Returns, and Iron Man. Nice to have you back. It's great to be back, Skid. Also returning to the show is Chris Batty. Chris, your credits include A Wrinkle in Time, Creed II, and Aquaman. And you're a member of the Visual Effects Society, abbreviated as VES, which is the visual effects equivalent of SAG or the DGA. Nice to see you again. It's great to be here. Thank you. Glad to have you both here. Listeners, before we get started, you can learn more about these guys by going to imdb.com and searching for Below the Line. Every episode of the podcast is listed there with my guests, and a click on their names will take you straight to their credits. Okay, the five 2023 films nominated for visual effects are The Creator, Godzilla Minus One, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part One, and Napoleon. We're going to discuss them in that order, and spoilers are possible, so consider this a warning. Also, as a reminder, we like to recognize our below-the-line compatriots by name, even if it means I'm occasionally mispronouncing some of them. Of course, my guests should know their names themselves than being in the community, and if they don't correct me, then the blame is shared. Either way, apologies in advance, and let's dive right in. First up, the creator, the nominated team is Jay Cooper, Ian Comley, Andrew Roberts, and Neil Corbold. I think it's Corbold. Corbold. Thanks, yeah. Chris, for getting right on that. Appreciate that right out the gate. All right. <laughs> that, that's the only one I got. <laughs> well, and as we'll see, that one's coming up again. We'll see if I get it right next time. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, let's dive right in. What do you guys think about the visual effects on the creator? So the creator is a really interesting case. Um, you know, it's sort of more of a scrappy down and dirty. I know it's um, I think it was about an uh, $80 million movie, um, uh, definitely under a $100 million movie. Um, and so the process was a little different. Um, you know, the director's Gareth Edwards, you know, you know him from like Rogue One, um, and he'd done some other independent stuff. So what they ended up doing is they kind of flipped the paradigm of visual effects. Usually, you know, you, you shoot and you plan things out and you have a lot of blue screens and usually the last few weeks is kind of demarcated as the kind of visual effects weeks in the, in the, in the shoot schedule. But this one, he just sweet talked the studio, got a very small crew together, almost like he was shooting a nature documentary. And they went all around Southeast Asia, kind of primarily in Thailand and shot the whole movie. Um, just with actors on normal, you know, normal uh, locations. And then afterwards, they took all that footage back and, and brought it to ILM. And then those geniuses just started painting within the plates that he shot. Um, and so it's kind of very interesting in that way where they're sort of painting on top, um, you know, in, instead of fully modeling out an entire environment and city and just hoping that they, you know, just sort of planning out all those shots. What they did is they shot first and then inserted the, the CG elements. Um, and so 
it, it's it's really an interesting movie and and you know it's a good story too and so i, I was pretty excited um to see that you know and also uh we should mention that the primary challenge of the visual effects in the creator they had to kind of come up with these designs and implement them in a way that doesn't take away from the actors performances so you know the creator is all about you know these ai robots um and so he would hire just normal actors and then they would post treat it afterwards to give them more of a machine-like you know a varying degrees machine-like physicality so that way he could kind of keep all their performances um and then just insert those into the plates that way the audience can maintain that sort of emotional connection to the, each character. And it was quite interesting. So I think the uh, creator is a great example of like sort of modern VFX work and it playing a role, but in helping support the story. It's almost like you took all of Gareth Edwards experiences of making monsters, monsters as an independent feature and what he did in Godzilla and Rogue One and it combined it all in this running gun style photography. They even famously shot with a prosumer grade $4,000 mirrorless camera, the Sony FX3. Um, and they used that so that he could actually shoot the, the, the a lot of the photography himself, along with the DP, Orrin Sofer. And they had a, a very extensive and very crucial time with uh, Greg Frazier before they actually shot the movie where he was acting as the DP. There was a scheduling conflict. He couldn't follow through and finish the film or actually go on the photography shoot. But I think all of that sort of took on a life of its own. And it's almost like the movie is Rogue One meets Ex Machina in terms of like how the VFX that were being used. Like in Ex Machina, even though that had nothing to do with Gareth Edwards, it was all about the performance of Alicia Vicklander and the VFX supported that performance. And in the same way that Chris had mentioned, the designs of the robots of the of, of this, you know, half human, half robot, all sort of met, they, they felt very human minus the back of their skull and sort of little nuances that caused them to be, oh yeah, they're robots that you can see through their head with this giant hole in the back, you know, that sort of gave you the, the, the machinery of who they were. And so that was a case of where they used that style of, of shooting, that run and gun, long takes and sort of fit in. And they're thematically this year with a lot of the VFX nominees, it's a different year. Sometimes you find themes in the year. And this year's theme was let the filmmakers do what they want. And in past years, the VFX would put restrictions on how they would shoot in order to achieve the effect. And I think if you look at this film, Napoleon is also very similar in its use of practical effects. Godzilla is actually, even though, even though there are heavy VFX in Godzilla, the VFX supervisor is also the director of Godzilla. So like, there was this idea or concept of filmmakers being creative and the VFX dealing with the results. And this is definitely a case where if you listen to interviews with the, with the VFX artists or the VFX supervisors behind, in between the lines, there's questions like, oh, well, Gareth Edwards, the director is super experienced in visual effects. Therefore, he must've made it easier. And the answer is almost always, well, yes and no. He knows a lot. Therefore, he's gonna try and do a lot of things which makes our lives harder. At the same time, he knows a lot that helps us in sort of how we shoot things and put things together. So. I think that combination of know-how, scrappiness, $80 million budget, as opposed to a $200 million budget, you know, it looks like a $200 million movie. 
There's no question when you watch that film. It's an original sci-fi film that does a ton of world building, but almost all the shots on the earth are practical plate shots. The only place where it gets super CG is when they go up into the Nomad space station. All of those backgrounds are CG. And in that case, they designed and built that CG environment and used their LED screen to sort of light the, the, the actors and to make to add the realism to those shots. So again, a great use of technology, but still trying to ground it in some practical way. And the LED screens have now become the vehicle for that. And that, I bet that Greg Fraser had a lot to do with that since he had experience with the LED screens on Batman. So uh, last year on Batman. So I think there's a yeah. lot of great and impressive sort of VFX work in this film, you know, like, and that's what's, it's the quality across the bar in this film is very high in terms of its realism and what it, what it did with the robots. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, it is, it is almost like two different processes, right, Kent, where the earthbound stuff is kind of using the, sort of like shoot first and, and kind of fill in the plates as is. And then yeah. the the back end, you know, sort of climactic stuff in the space station is probably a little bit more traditional. Right. They had to design the space station before they shot it with the LED screens or else they wouldn't know what they were going to shoot. I mean, it was incredible. If you look at any of the behind the scenes stuff, like even like the factory is a practical factory that they shot inside of. And then they just added augmented that with additional CG elements. Sometimes, like you said, pasted in 2D elements just to make the background look a little more high tech. So they were very smart in how they approached all of that world building, considering their budget and sort of where they were sort of with like trying to stay within that budget. And I think that was super smart. Um, the, the design by James Klein cannot be discounted either because I think that played into how they could sh the movie the way they wanted to like he made everything grounded in the, his designs of like the world and so they, there was always some part of it that could be shot practical you know even the la stuff maybe the foreground freeway was practical and then beyond it was a giant crater from the nuclear bomb explosion right you know yeah it was it's interesting too like um kind of watching one of the interviews with gareth edwards about him trying to convince ilm uh, on a way of working that might be cheaper because usually their usual process is, is they'll model an entire environment out to the bolt, like yeah. just super, super detailed. And they do that because normally you have a thing and then you go to shoot and then the director changes his mind like, oh, let's shoot this way. And then ILM's like, no problem. We you have the totally whole thing. Yeah. yeah, we have it all completely modeled. So what Gareth wanted to do is shoot his plates first so he did that and then he said oh, all you have to do is fill in these three shots with this thing and then so so all you have to do is simple geometry and just sort of project like a some texture or painting on top of that and it was very much against their philosophy and they're kind of like uh i don't know but it you know and the, at the end of the day it's faster to do that and so you're not kind of developing a certain asset or environment for like months or weeks you only see it for a short amount of time and then but the, here they only build what they need and then they can move on and i think this shows sort of the adaptability of vfx in the modern era like yes. they were willing to go outside their comfort zone and say hey we're going to get in this together we realize the budget's 80 million but we can still do this thing and i think that i applaud that because so many times in my past life it's been very sort of rigid and I think that rigidity is what filmmakers hate about VFX is that it turns into this giant game of limitations 
And then they don't like the final product that they get at the end or the final result. And I think this allowed, let the filmmakers be who they are is sort of the theme of this year, really, if I had to think about it in terms of the VFX nominees. Yeah. Well, that's going to take us to our next nominee, Godzilla Minus One. And the nominated team is Takashi Yamazaki, Kyoko Shibuya. Yeah, that sounds right. Masaki Takahashi and Tetsuji Nojima. Great. I think you did great on that. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, kid. Let's talk to us about Godzilla Minus One. So Godzilla, I loved this film. Godzilla Minus One is, is actually a great movie. And it's something that I, I recommend to actually everyone I talk to about movies this year. I think it's been an extraordinary year for movies in general. But this is by far the best Godzilla movie in a long time. And I'm a huge Godzilla fan, so I have a bias. But this film is made by Japanese by a Japanese filmmaker in Japan for Toho. It is the origin of Godzilla. It goes back to its his roots as far as what he represents in Japanese culture. It talks about post-World War II Japan and has a lot to say about it. It has a lot to say about what the people think of the government and how the war effort went. And sort of, I, I think that it's a very nuanced film in a lot of ways. And it's also very, it's very, like, it has lots of nods to the original Godzilla, the 1954 original black and white Godzilla film, and the metaphor of Godzilla as the atomic bomb, and all of those sort of, all of the subtext of, of Godzilla is in this film. And it's in, it's, it's in, it's in Japanese, and, and that's the other extraordinary thing. It's, it's a box office hit, considering it's a foreign film, it's a Godzilla movie, and its budget is only $15 million. I just want to say that again. We were just talking about the creator being $80 million as a low-budget VFX-driven film. This is a $15 million film. And it is the greatest example in this list of doing more with less. It, the, the total VFX team size, 35 people. The director was also the visual effects supervisor for the movie. And this eliminated a ton of back and forth between artists, managers, production support, and the director. They basically closed the gap. And this film, more than any other, at the VFX Oscar Bake Off, it really established itself as, as a front runner from their presentation. They, they had this charming, unbelievable presentation where they had, they had set up ten, like seven action figures of Godzilla, and they labeled one with a paper that says, says director, and they labeled another one with artist. And then they physically removed all of the in-between Godzillas and put the two together and basically said, this is how we did the movie. And it's a, and I think it, and the, the camaraderie of the team is super evident when they talk about the film. There was 610 visual effects shots in the movie. There's a hundred water effect shots. For the budget, it is incredibly ambitious. They made sure that Godzilla looks like a man in a suit in that how he how the how the creature moved um and it was all done partially in homage to the original but also budgetary constraints there were questions from the academy at the bake off about well what did you do about your muscle simulation and how did you do it on this budget and the director slyly said well we didn't have any muscle simulation because the original suit didn't have muscle simulation. And that limitation became a, a bonus for us. And it was sort of, I'm paraphrasing here. And the fact that it did kind of look like a man in the suit, but still looked real. 
and was shot in a manner that was didn't stand out as fake was extraordinary and was and worked out in their favor. They didn't try to do more than they could have. And as far as the water shots go, the compositor, the lead compositor for the film, Tasuji Nojima, was actually doing Houdini, which is a, another 3D package uh, effects work at home with water, brought it into the office and said, well, this is what I've been doing at home. And the director said, that looks great. Let's put some more water shots in the movie. And they ended up increasing the number of shots of water simulation because the lead compositor had just been, happened to be doing it. They went with a different strategy than most visual effects of driven films. They allowed each artist to do an entire effect themselves, the modeling, the effects work, the compositing. In today's age, most larger visual effects driven films are specialized in like allowing, there's the modeler, there's the effects artist, there's the animator, there's the rigger, and there's the compositor, and there's the light. Like they're all separate. And in this case, because they were smaller, they had to be scrappy. And they they did all of this work with these 35 people. I, I love this one too. It, it felt more like um, sort of post-war family melodrama that was interrupted by a monster movie, you know? <laughs> so both the human story and the Godzilla story, they're, they're intertwined and they're both great and you care about the characters. And so I think you know, again, visual effects all in service of that. And I think having the director, the same person as the visual, visual effects supervisor, um, in this case is a great service because he knew exactly what he needed. He knew exactly the story he was trying to tell and it all kind of fed into that. And uh, Kate, you're right. I mean, it, it does harken back to the old golden age of Godzilla in that the movie does a great uh, job of sort of riding that line between um, sort of the old school miniature guy in suit effects right. and, and the modern sort of photo real, you know, disaster film effects. Right. So it just, it totally rides that line where sometimes you look at a shot and it's like, Oh no, that's a, that's a real battleship out there, a real Japanese destroyer. But then it, and then when Godzilla shows up, it kind of feels like he's tossing boats around in a bathtub. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, right? But not quite. You know, it's like riding that line and it's like, it's just done really well. And even his design, you could tell they looked at the old Godzilla and the way his arms are, it's a guy in a suit. It just, it just, the, the proportions of it, it's not like a real monster with the tiny little T-Rex arms, right? It's like, he's got real shoulders, you know? And it, it both like thematically, it makes him look stronger because he's kind of big bulky monster, but then also, um, you know, it just sort of gives you that little tinge back. And then sometimes the, when the buildings fall apart, it kind of feels like a miniature, but it's so much more complicated. Yeah. And, and so, there's much so much more detail in, in the building collapse that yeah, you can, it's, so it has all the simulation that makes it look real. And so there's this weird thing that happens in your brain where you know it's, you know, inherently it has to be fake, but there's a part of you that believes it. And in the context of the story, it really works. It just is something that like the music comes on, the old Godzilla, they use the yes, old score. that's right. And as soon as the score came on, I got chills, you know, and it, maybe it's just my childhood of knowing those films so well, but as soon as the, the score, the original score kicks in, it really has an effect of bringing you back to that, that, that time and that those movies and what they meant. I think the way that they portrayed the atomic breath, it is an atomic bomb blast. Like that is, yeah. they literally, it literally becomes a thing. So it's an event. 
when he allow when he unleashes the atomic breath, the fins actually protrude. They, they sort of click out, and then there's a big buildup. And they set this up for the end of the film, where you know he's he, there's some time before he's going to be able to do it, and it creates this dramatic tension in all the shots that this thing is going to happen, you know. And I think that it was super effective. There's this funny moment when uh, the VFX team was talking about the limitations, and they say would say things like, "Well, we had intended to have a huge hydraulic gimbal for these." ship shots and uh and but we only could afford this little piece and it's literally the railing and a deck <laughs> and and so they and they showed the shots they had the before and after of they're on this ship that's being buffeted by waves and the and, and like and the actors are hanging on to the railing and moving back and forth and then they show the actual behind the scenes footage and the the ship is static the railing is static and they're literally star trekking against it with the camera moving counter moving to it and it's that that kind of ingenuity or there's a there's a jet fighter at the climax of the movie and they said we were going to get a gimbal and draw and have the cockpit inside this gimbal so we couldn't afford that so we got the four strongest people on the crew to to basically move it and they show them like with sticks moving the whole the whole apparatus and it's like that kind of ingenuity and scra and scrappiness I think it's the heart of visual effects, really, of like what it means to like make movies and to like solve problems. And I and I think it has a real shot. I think that like there's a charm yeah. to this movie. There's a charm to the team that presented this film, and it is it is also garnered extremely great reviews, and it's a box office hit. So I think once all of those things align, people are talking about this film in a way that no other Godzilla film gets talked about. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, which. Just with a small amount of money, what they were able to do. And most of it is just, you know, they able to incorporate it all in service of the story because you care about those characters so much. It just even I don't know, it reminded me. I remember going to Japan and when I was there, I watched one authentic Japanese movie, which is a post-war melodrama called Tokyo Story. And it's about this family right after the war and the devastation uh, of Tokyo and how what they had to kind of do and deal with. And it's very much of that same vein. And you care just as much about those people. And that was an old 50s melodrama and, it, mm -hmm. you know, with no effects. And then this is the same thing. And it's a Godzilla <laughs> movie. And you have the same amount of like emotional weight and uh, just kudos. It's the authenticity. Like we always every filmmaker, whether you're a visual effects artist, or you're a director, you're or an actor, or try, is trying to mine authenticity, and in this film, ooze it oozes authenticity in a way that other films, other Godzilla films, have not. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Now, and in some categories, the craft seems to stand separate from the movie itself. In other words, I think of hair makeup where they'll pull out a movie that's the only place it's been nominated, but they're talking about some of the prosthetic work or, or some specific slice. Here, you guys seem to be suggesting that how the movie turns out overall and how visual effects is trying to integrate with those overall story maybe carries more weight than it might in some other categories. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, people are going to vote the way they want to vote for whatever reasons they have, but mm -hmm. maybe that's actually a feature here and how it integrates with these other story ideas. I think, yeah, it's just, it's, you know, it's a monster movie. But like you genuinely care for the characters. So it makes, you know, when Godzilla attacks it, it even though it's looks kind of like a guy in a suit, even though that's there, you care about the characters and what Kent's saying with the gimbal on the ship 
and they're getting tossed around. Um, you care about them and you don't want them to get injured. And so it just makes it all that much more exciting and integrated. I think visual effects can often be the most unpredictable category in, in the Oscars, partly because it is a case where the expertise is difficult to sometimes ascertain what's real and what's fake and what's done as a visual effect. And the movie does carry it at times. And that's why you have upsets. There are years where there's like, if you compare like the visual effects society award winner versus the Oscar winner, it's different. And I think it's because of that. I think that there are times where the, the quality of the film carries it. And, and I think that that's, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I just, because part of it is the visual effects are so integrated into the film that it creates a complete experience. Yeah. And I think so. And, and that's why this year is, is pretty interesting because we have, um, all the nominees are, 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 are pretty good contenders for the award. Yeah. We're like last, yeah, yeah, last year we had Avatar. Yeah. And so you're just sort of like, well, that's great. But the, and then <laughs> you have all the other nominees and you're like, well, those are great movies too, but it's just no chance, you know? So this one is really interesting because they all have slightly different philosophies, slightly, you know, and hugely different budgets. Right. Um, but they're all kind of doing things to, you know, hopefully integrate into the story. It's that it's that whole thing when, if you see a, I mean, it's it's any discipline, but with visual effects, if you see a visual effect, you know it's a visual effect, then it kind of takes you out of it, and you know the jeopardy is gone, or or the tension is gone, and it ruins it ruins the experience. All right. Well, let's compare that to the next film on our list, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. And the nominated team is Stefan Soretti, Alexis Wastebrot, Guy Williams, and Theo Balik. Uh, Teo. I think it is Teo. Teo. Yeah. And you think yeah. it's Balik, or is that wrong as well? Bialik, maybe? Sorry, Teo, that's on me. <laughs> Guys, what do you have to say about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3? So with Guardians, I really like this movie. I think it's, it's a good um, closure to the trilogy um and it's an interesting movie in that it's primarily rocket's story who is a raccoon and so you need to have emotional weight and so i think the visual effects were a great uh use of that in 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 service of this emotional weight and emotional story of rocket's sort of you know from from basically small childhood birth to who he is uh, currently and how he became to be. Um, and so I know um, at the beginning of the production, what they ended up doing to tell his story and the story of his friends and, you know, so how he kind of came out, they just went to a, a simple motion capture stage, you know, which is the, the stage where it's basically blank and everyone all the actors are there with their suits and dots and so they acted out all the scenes just as humans as actors to get that performance there and all that emotional weight with real actors and then uh they went back and and sort of overdid it with each of the sort of creature or animals and so i think this one is a is a great example of like how that kind of pushes through you know and there's a lot of other th interesting things in this movie as well you know as far as this sort of 
the different environments and some are sort of more biomechanical so that there's a certain level of complexity there. Um, there's also a, a huge oneer, uh, which is a giant continuous shot uh, in the fighting that's really interesting that had to be timed to music, which is also a, a, a bigger complexity. Um, and so I, I think all the little little this one ticks a lot of boxes for me. Um, and it's also um, obviously very compelling visually. You know, each little environment has its own characteristic um, and color palette, and it's it's very striking. So, Chris, but so you're saying this visual effects work is supported by some of Bradley Cooper's best work this year. You're thinking uh, this is the one he should have been nominated for rather than Maestro, then just because of what he brought to it with the computer yeah. around. I mean, less prosthetics, I'm sure, but. Um, <laughs> Um, you know, I, I think he just sort of brings it, you know, you can hear it in his voice. And the, and the odd thing is um, a lot of the motion capture was not Bradley Cooper. You know, it's, uh, oh, shoot, I forget the other actor's name. It's James Gunn's brother, right? Isn't it James? Yeah, it's James, it's James Gunn's brother does a lot of the motion capture. Um, so Bradley Cooper comes in and does a lot of the, you know, obviously does all the voice acting, which is extremely hard to do to get directed and you're just sitting in a chair and a microphone. But he, you know, you can hear it in his voice, all the pain and anger and, you know, all that sort of emotional journey that the film takes. But the the motion capture performances are done by other artists or other motion artists. So I find that interesting, too. Yeah, that's the, the melding. And then not, not only that, then there's the animation side of it. So yeah. what Chris is talking about in terms of the that for that scene of their origin of, the, of them, they shot. 366 shots in the first two days. That's 12% of all the VFX shots. And then they had all this time to create the rigs and to like create the characters and even Rocket, who they've already created once, you know, several times. They had to go back to the drawing board in order to get the emotion. There's the characters are so importantly are so important in that they're the close-ups. And what people should pay attention to is the eyes. When you look at the like Rocket Raccoon's eyes in this movie. That they for sure redesigned the rig and how those moved, how the eyes moved in order to get the level of emotion, but yet still retain the animalistic quality of a raccoon at the same time. And you're riding that line between anthropomorphic and animal, and they did a great job of sort of setting that up. And it's one of the things that you always, the rigging and the character rigging on a sequel is something that's always discussed. Like is like the, the pros and cons of re-rigging a character because that's time that it takes to, when I say rigging, it's creating the infrastructure to animate the character itself. And new technologies come up, new needs on the show come up. But at the same time, the old rig has all the old like knowledge and know-how that went into building that and animating that character that now you're going to throw away and redo. And so that conundrum comes up often in sequels and they made the right decision to like, basically go in and redo all of that rigging on, on Rocket for sure. And Groot obviously would have to be redone because he's a different age than he was the previous film. And so this is, this brings on, this movie represents the Marvel edition. Every year since I've been involved with visual effects and Marvel's been around, they've had at least one film nominated for, for best visual effects. This is their entry for this year. Um, they have yet to win it though. Marvel has never won best visual effects um, in, in, and even though it's been nominated probably more times as a studio than a lot of other ones, uh, but they've never won. And this is sort of their swan song for Guardians of the Galaxy. It'll be interesting to see if that can garner, you know, the award. And it, it's in the running for sure. 
As there's 3,066 shots in the film. It's probably one of the higher budget shows. You know, it features every, as Chris said, every aspect, environments, character work. There's a scene with like 600 furry creatures escaping the, mm-hmm. the ship. Like those are all like 600 creatures that have to be animated, built, rigged and animated and surfaced um, and lit. Uh, there's the big one the two minute shot of them fighting in the hallway with which basically comprised of 17 different takes that are stitched together with real actors and with digital doubles. Like there's a high degree of difficulty in all of the, all of that work. And so that's why it's nominated. It, it has all those characteristics in this one film, you know? So in some ways it's great that it comes right after Godzilla minus one, because here you have like, and, and it's sandwiched between with, you know, you have, Gar- yeah. you have Godzilla, God's, uh, you know, you have guardians and then you have mission impossible like in a row, those are three very different kinds of movies and three very different kinds of visual effects, which makes it hard to compare. It makes it, it really like it's not a fair comparison between all these movies. And that's why it can go any way, really. Yeah. And, and it's really interesting that, you know, like this is the Marvel um, entry into this whole thing in that because normally we kind of look at Marvel and it's more of quantity rather than quality, you know, they have some amazing stuff. Um, but this one, I think throughout just has both quantity and quality through the entire uh, movie. Um, yeah, I agree. I, I agree. It's the most, un- like Guardians of the Galaxy to some degree is the most unlikely hit of the Marvel franchise, right? Of the yes. Marvel universe, right? If you were to describe the elements of Guardians of the Galaxy before they made the first one, I think you wouldn't make a lot, a lot of people wouldn't bet on that. And they came out. It was and oh, yeah. James Gunn's vision of that, of that sort of that group is what made it a hit and made it what it was. And this is the culmination of of all of it, you know, for 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 the franchise. So I think they did a great job with this film. Yeah, yeah, and I think specifically this one has a real good shot because of, um, you know, it has to carry all that emotion with it and believability in those. Um, all the creatures yeah. performances. And like you said, can't, I mean, they have to hold up. There's some really extreme close-ups of these CG characters, you know, uh, eyes crying and, and all that. And you, and you believe it and it works within the film. You just totally get it. I think it's interesting that it was criticized for displaying animal cruelty. Like there was, that was an actual, at yeah. the time of release, this movie was criticized for how it glorified or depicted animal cruelty. And I'm like, these are all visual effects animals. None of them are real. And I, I understand that yours, that the criticism is about the, the idea of it, but it's so effective. That says a lot about the visual effect that people would be willing to come out because if it's cartoon violence, nobody cares. But if it's, it feels real, then people start to really care about those things. And it shows you how effective that visual effect was. And I think it's a testament to these artists that it was a criticism. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, the fourth film on our list, as we previewed, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1. And the nominated team is Alex Woodka, Simone Coco, Jeff Sutherland, and up again, Neil Corbold. Did I say it right right. this time, Chris? Got it? You you got it. Dead on. (laughs) You nailed it. (laughs) Dead on. Okay. (laughs) Dead reckoning. So I do believe that as of right now, the part one has been removed. I think that that is as a little little revisionist history on the Mission Impossible franchise that they've decided on uh, streaming that it no longer has the part one for some reason. So um, 
This is, again, Mission Impossible. It fills the void left by James Bond last year, being a stunt-heavy um, action adventure that is photoreal, in which uh, the visual effects are often downplayed and not discussed. But, you know, partly because Tom Cruise famously does his own stunts and he famously does the motorcycle jump uh, with the par with the parachute. It's just a, an amazing stunt, and I still can't believe he does that stuff. And no, no diss on Tom Cruise. And I'm actually in awe of the fact he's doing that stuff. But this takes that role in this lineup of films and is in this sort of category of of a film is actually extraordinary. Like the the, the works that often invisible, you don't realize it's there. For example, there is a scene in this film in which the character of Benji, played by Simon Pegg, diffuses a bomb inside an airport and in specifically in a baggage sorting area. And yes, they went to an actual airport and shot a, a baggage sorting area and scanned it to build the models, but they shot the actual photography on a green screen with foreground props, like with a conveyor belt and everything else was filled in. And you would not know that watching the film. Like they did, it's so photoreal, you don't realize that. Or they go to the American sort of uh, 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 spy center and it's a room full of people on desk terminals. And they only had people in the foreground and the hundreds beyond it were all filled in. The walls were all replaced and you wouldn't know it watching the film. So there's another example of an invisible effect. And then of course we get to the stunts and you get to the big car chase that happens in Spain, I believe it is. And those scenes are filmed. They had to build special practical cars where the driving is actually done in the back seat. So the actors could be in the front seat uh, when Haley Atwell's driving the, I think it's a BMW SUV. Uh, and so they could film her driving, but she's not really driving the person in the back seat that they paint out later is the stunt person is driving them through actual seats, streets of Spain, or the, the sets they're in. They're putting in CG cars that they're avoiding that look photoreal. And then they get to the famous steps where the little, is it a Fiat? It's a little miniature car. Yeah, a little Fiat on the Spanish steps. Yeah, in Rome. falls yeah. down the steps and they obviously couldn't film that. Oh, it's, they ruined the steps. That's a set, let's say yeah. film in which they, you know, replaced most of the background with the, Span the Spanish plates or with a CG recreate of the, of the plates. And the standout for the film, of course, is the climactic train locomotive you know, falling in and Tom Cruise and Haley Atwell running up the falling train where they had to build like three different gimbals to do it. They they took a practical real locomotive and shot it into a quarry and filmed that and augmented that. Yes, they actually did like, like this is the kind of budget for these films, right? Like this is like, again, yeah. in comparison to Godzilla, where they couldn't get a single gimbal. They had probably yeah, three this, or four, four. Yeah, they used a real train. <laughs> they had a real train locomotive front like they shot it into a quarry and filmed it hitting the bottom and then augmented it with CG. So, and they put cameras on it obviously to get all the shots. So that gives you a sense of all of the things, even in the, the gimbal shots inside the interior of the train cars where it's each successive cars falling one after another and Tom Cruise and Haley have to climb as it's falling and they're in a gimbal, meaning that it's actually inverted, that they replace the interior with a CG interior and then put CG debris that's falling past them because they can't endanger the actors, obviously. You know, and they're all rigged up with harnesses so they don't fall to their, you know, or get hurt. And they paint out all of that stuff. 
but it's an, an amazing amount of work that has to go into even doing something that's practical. So, and that is not taking away from the acting at all. It's not taking away no. from the no. And I think that's what's unfair about some of the, some of the, when people say, oh, it was all practical. Yes, the actors acted and it was all, and they had to defy gravity to some degree. And they were, and, and they were hard stunts, but all of them after were CG augmentation. And that doesn't detract from the actors. It doesn't detract from the stunts or the photography. It only enhances the viewing experience. And a friend of mine who I saw at the VFX Bake Off said, remarked to me, you know, visual effects is the only aspect of filmmaking that the filmmakers deny. You never hear someone say, oh, well, we didn't have any makeup on our movie or we didn't have any, <laughs> any costumes in our movie, you know, but they'll say we didn't have any visual effects. And it really is a shame because in a film like this, it's extraordinary. There's great stunts and there's great visual effects. Yeah, I, I think the 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 whole train sequence is a great example because, um, you know, it's really Tom Cruise on top of that train, like he's really on there. But if you look at the plates of the train, one car is missing because that's where all the camera equipment and stunt <laughs> yeah. people are. So they had to put that car back in, and you know, it's it's like it's really Tom Cruise on those gimbals, like when that train is falling down, like he's really climbing up. Yeah. Um, but like the piano's fake, you know, <laughs> they're not going to throw a grand piano at Tom Cruise. No matter, no matter I mean, how good he's at stuff, they're not going to throw a grand piano at Tom No, but he's no how much really, he asked for it. He's throwing the piano yeah, yeah, right now. Yeah. Someone else is going to overrule I, I think there's going to be some insurance guy on the set going, uh, I don't think so. The Steinway, so, the Steinway is going to take us over budget. They can't do that. You know, and then of course the great stunt of him on the motorcycle and parachuting off the cliff, like he actually did that. They just all they had to do is augment the 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 cliff face so that yeah. instead of it, instead of a stunt ramp, it's a it's you know it's, it's like a grassy, yeah, like, dirt dirt and grass, right? You and know, like so like that's kind of a minimal effort. I had a couple of quotes um, from Christopher McQuarrie from the director, right? Where one of his criticisms now he loves visual effects, like he's into visual effects, but one of his criticisms for visual effects was you get what you want. And so uh, that is a limitation to him. And so I think that's why they like doing as much as possible um, practically, because you get all those chaotic unknowns. Right. Um, he was saying like one of the things that he was happy about, they really launched a locomotive off a cliff. Now they had to augment that heavily, yeah. but they actually put cameras on the side of a locomotive as it went off. And they were saying that the wheels going around created some sort of torque force that was very weird for the camera. And it looked very fast and dangerous. And he was happy, you know, that he got that. So even though they have to augment that, they're the base plates there. Also the same thing with the stunt of, you know, um, Tom Cruise and Haley Atwell are, are trying to climb up the car and it's a kitchen car and there's grease coming down. Yeah. And so there's actual grease on there and they're actually climbing up this, this you know, gimbaled train car. And so there's a lot of chaos and them actually trying to climb up and slipping and coming around. And so that's stuff you just can't plan for. Um, and then you can augment it. And so and I think that kind of thing in, in going back to the creator, that sort of Gareth Edwards mentality of try to shoot as much practically because you get that sort of 
chaotic happenstance that you didn't really plan for and then use it and then you can kind of alter it from there yeah. and, it, and it's and it's pretty incredible and that's a nod to neil corbel so his name yes. come up every year we have neil, neil corbel and this at a least once so because he's the special effects supervisor coordinator it's yep. his job to like build the gimbal like to oversee the building of the gimbal and the magic of all of these real things you know are are under his you know domain and it's he should be in the list like that's that is that is a nod to his craftsmanship and his ability to plan and to build and and his crew of people that have to build these things to like make these things happen and be safe like let's throw that in there they have to be safe they have to do these crazy mechanical things but still be safe you know and he's able to do that and that's why he's constantly on our list like i think every year i've done this with you uh skid his name's on the list for some movie or another movie and like it deservedly so yeah yeah no he's been around for a while and he's always always doing very interesting things and he's going to be i think he's in our next movie too right <laughs> in fact that'll take us right into it uh, our fifth film on the list is napoleon nominated team is charlie henley luke ewan martin fennelly oh, i made a mess of that one for sure uh <laughs> simone coco is back and rounding it out neil corbold that is Simone's second and Neil's third nomination this year. And I do wonder which teams they're going to sit with. <laughs> Conversation for another podcast for this. Let's talk about Napoleon. Yeah. With Neil Corbel, though, you you just wonder who's going to sit with him. So, <laughs> yeah. So this one, this is an incredible film as well. I mean, it's a very long film and it's very, but it's a very beautiful film. I mean, it's Ridley Scott, um, you know, famous, uh, very famous director, of course. And um, so he's famous for drawing his own storyboards. Um, so he has a design background from way back when. Um, and so he's very meticulous. So he, he draws his own storyboards um, and is always kind of seeking out to get a specific vision. Um, and a lot of Napoleon was based on some of the imagery was based on these old like 19th century paintings. Um, so it has that feel to it in that sort of historical context. Um, and then just bring up Neil Corbold again, it, this is a amazing film because, uh, again, you have to work just like mission impossible. You have to work hand in hands, both the special effects, the physical effects and the visual effects, the CG stuff. And so they had to kind of work in unison, you know, one of the examples with Napoleon they're talking about is like the cannon fire. So Ridley really wanted to see smoke come out of those cannons on set. And so Neil Corbell came up with a whole system. I think using like baby powder. It's uh, talcum powder. I talcum powder. Talcum. But I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, yeah, yeah, it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. It's the same thing, right? So, uh, so they would at least have an effect, something coming out of the muzzle of the cannon that they could shoot. And then, of course, um, the visual effects companies, you know, whether it was ILM or or whoever, um, had to come back and and sort of augment that to make it you know powerful and actually see the cannonball and all that stuff and so this again is a, a beautiful film in the ves world this is nominated for supporting visual effects uh which is a little bit arguable because there's, it's a little, i think it's a little arguable on this one I there's think a there's over so a thousand many. there's over a thousand shots in this one um but it's um 
you know, again, it just kind of, it's, it's all there to support the story, which I think it does beautifully well. Like you believe uh, you're in 19th century, early 19th century France, right? One of the things, one of the other sort of anecdotes they were talking about is, um, you know, uh, augmenting the environments. So they would shoot in these beautiful old homes uh, and rooms, you know, that were all 18th and 19th century built. And so they were not allowed to use candles, real open flames, because they had all these old paintings and, 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 and such. So uh, Neil Corbell came up with a, another ingenious thing was using tiny little uh, LEDs on top of each candle. Um, and it, it was so convincing with both the color temperature and everything on film that when it was sort of in the background and kind of out of focus, they just left it. Um, but then uh, the CG artists had to come in and sort of augment the flame and make it real flames. So they photographed real flames to put in all that. So then you get that feeling of almost like in um, Barry Lyndon from Stanley Kubrick, which is famous for using available light. Uh, you get that same kind of sense that, you know, it's not very fake. Uh, it's, it feels like real candlelit rooms. Um, and so I found like that was pretty impressive too. And there's so much more. I mean, they had a hundred real life horses on set, 300 men at times. So 11 cameras shooting simultaneous, 14 practical cannons firing talcum powder. They figured out, like Neil Corbel, Corbel figured out how to explode the ground underneath actors without hurting them. So those seeing those shots in the big battle in which a cannonball hits a guy and the ground underneath him explodes and he dies, that actually was shot. A lot of that was shot practically. And they had come up with a system that would be, you know, not obviously not hurt the actor. So like th these are, that's a pretty big innovation in my mind in terms of, it's one, it's risky. And two, that you figured out how to do it without, you know, hurting somebody is an incredible uh, feat unto itself. So hats off to Neil Vogel. Uh, Blen uh, I think it's Blenheim Palace in... Wood, Woodstock, England, they used that to substitute for uh, the Kremlin and Tillery's uh, Palace in France, where they, because really wanted to shoot practical, again, let the filmmakers do, be who they are, shoot practical and replace after. And those are fairly, if you know anything about architecture, those are very different architecture to use for the same set, you know, the same location, yet they did that. Um, I think one of the standout effects, which is not talked about that often, which I think should be talked about, is the burning of Moscow. That those shots at when that happens, it looks amazing. And it reminds me a little bit of 1917, the night shots when the main character is in the city that's on fire and getting uh getting blasted. Um, they're beautiful, and uh, Roger Deakins had shot that and it's like stunning. In the same way, it harkened me back, it reminded me back of that of those scenes in 1917. I thought that was an effective visual effect. Uh, the battle for and but the, of all the battles and there were many battles, the battle of Aus Austerlitz is amazing. It's the one where the, Napoleon has tricked the, uh, the the enemies onto the ice and then blows up the ice and they fall through. It is stunning. All the underwater shots are great. It's a great blend of practical and visual effects and plate photography. It's super well done. I also think the other one of the interesting things. This is the first movie I've watched from this time period where the strategy of how to fight is very clear. Like you really see like in the Waterloo is a great example where the British soldiers come down and they form a square and then the, the French soldiers are, are circling them on their horses and they're shooting 
the square is shooting outward at the French soldiers. I had never seen that before. I'm not a, I guess I'm not a big history buff enough to know the strategy there, but it was interesting that the visual effects allowed that to be very clear. And I thought that, that was an interesting part of how the visual effects supported the film in terms of showing battles in the way that they were fought. There's been a lot of talk on the internet when it came out about how inaccurate the movie was in a historical inaccuracy, but I think the battles were pretty accurate in terms of the strategy. They worked very hard, it appeared to me, to get the strategy of the battles to work. And I thought that was a very interesting aspect of watching the film. And it, it and you don't think about the visual effect. You're just watching the battle happen and, you, and you're sort of thinking about what's happening, not how they achieve the effect. It's very, it's in this year's categories, it's very similar to All Quiet in the Western Front. So All Quiet in the Western Front, World War, a different war, obviously, than the stuff that's happening here. But I think in the same way that it occupies that space, and we've talked about how these other films occupy different spaces in this year's Oscars. And I think this one occupies the space of All Quiet in the Western Front and that it's this, the thing that is highlighted, it really is the battles more than anything else. And in sort of reading about how really Scott referenced 18th century paintings, especially the, the shot of the Sphinx, in which Napoleon sees the Sphinx and he's writing a letter, and, and there's like a there's like a voiceover of him talking, uh, you know, in his letters back to his wife. Uh, it's actually an exact sort of composition from a from an 18th century painting. It reminded me of how in when they were when DreamWorks was trying to make uh, Gladiator, they wanted to woo. Um, really Scott to direct it, they pulled out an 18th century painting of the Roman Colosseum of the decision of whether or not to like kill or spare one of the gladiators and that hooked Ridley Scott. So it was uh, Walter Parks and then the producer uh, Douglas Wick showed him this painting said you should direct this movie and it captured his imagination. And it's interesting that he would use the same technique to sort of show his team what he wanted the battles to look you know yeah it's, it's a great yeah because even even with a sort of emperor coronation which is a very famous painting uh of him you know they, they sort of captured that well i mean going back to the battles too ken i think um one of the first ones the sort of the siege of uh toulon yes um that one is a very interesting one in that because it kind of shows napoleon becoming napoleon um, so he was just sort of uh, a sort of top lieutenant. And then this is the one it, he kind of showed his ingenuity on how the British were occupying this this seaside port. So they captured it, took the, those guns and turned it onto the, you know, very famously strong British Navy and kind of got rid of the British. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you can kind of see like they had to do tons of augmentation. Obviously, they built a, or found a little bit of set. Um, but that whole town along with the boats, they had one boat. Yeah. Um, and so they had to create like a hundred boats. And so it's great because you can shoot out there and you have one boat. So you have something to go against. And now you can create all these, you know, like the HMS victory, these giant, uh, old, old 19th century British battleships. Um, and it, it and you kind of, experience it through napoleon and famously he gets shot off the horse and again with neil corwell they had to kind of figure out how to do that without killing anyone um and so or that any was horses or any horses so yeah they they came up with a, a great rig to kind of throw the stunt man you know make it believable but then go back in and augment it again uh to make it kind of gruesome and and, and napoleon 
becoming unfazed with that. Um, but yeah, it's, it, you kind of experience it through Napoleon and all these visual effects shots are just in support of that so that you could see how he actually becomes uh, the sort of powerhouse that he became. It's great. It's great. That effect of the horse getting hit by a cannon is, is photoreal and totally believable and really well done. Yeah, yeah. Well, as you guys have said, all of these movies, uh, it's a tough to, to, to see how who's going to come out on top with the voting. That being said, as I always ask, are there any other 2023 films you want to call out for achievement in visual effects? I don't think you can talk about any film from last year and some about visual effects and not mention Oppenheimer. Like that's probably the elephant in the room, to be frank, is that it didn't make the short list to get nominated. And it's kind of shocking that it did not. Like, I think that's worth a discussion. And it could be the backlash to Christopher Nolan talking about how there were no visual effects in the film. It could be backlash to the fact that he denied people credits at the end of the film, or I don't know if it was him, so I can't say it was him, but there were, uh, there were so many visual effects artists who didn't get a credit at the end of that film. And it fit the narrative of not having visual effects. And again, that theme was last year also with Top Gun. And I don't know exactly where that comes from. I'm sure it, it's, it's like, a you know, you there's many rants on the internet about how bad CG is. But I think, Oppen I think Oppenheimer deserved to at least be considered. It's, it's a phenomenal film. And the visual effects, again, support the film. And they show the atomic bomb blast in a way that's not traditional. Uh, and the use of practical special effects for uh, for the atom and the so the 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 way that he Nolan's you know used special effects and visual effects is actually really great. And I would love to see those artists rewarded, you know, if not for with credits, but at least some mention and some recognition. If you look at the other major awards, it it got nominations you know, in the other awards around the world for visual effects. And I think it's, you know, at least it should be part of the discussion. Yeah, it's very interesting because it did get nominated for um, a Visual Effects Society Award. Right. Um, for, um, you know, for supporting. And you're right. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of similar than All Quiet on the Western Front because they use primarily photographed effects you know, that was somewhat augmented in the compositing. And so your digital compositor is the real hero here, but you know, they're trying to visualize things, not how we would normally visualize them, but how they thought Oppenheimer would see it in his head. So if you're talking about, you know, the electrons in an atom or the explosions or the re atomic reactions, it was all done very expressively. Yeah, with it's all a these... moment. It's a moment, yeah. right? It's, it's like, a moment. It's a very, yeah, it's a very untraditional. And I, I love the film, and I think Christopher Nolan's a great filmmaker. I, I, all I want is just like the artists who work so hard on all these movies to be recognized for their effort. That's all. Like it's yeah. one of those things. It's a real shame that that's where we are in the sort of the filmmaking world now, where like CG is a bad word. And if someone does visual effects, that's if someone doesn't do any visual effects, that's a it's a it's a badge of honor in some way. Whereas it's just another tool that artists work very, very hard to like make them seamless. You know, when they are seamless, they should be rewarded for that. I I think, you know, it's like one of those things that's just a shame. It it is true. And I think so it's sort of like visual effects along with uh stunt people are Hollywood's dirty little secret. And sometimes I think it's easier if you're if you're doing a 
if it's a big movie and you want to be taken seriously and it's a serious drama, don't have stunts and don't have visual effects. Yeah, maybe, are, maybe that's what it is. And that's know? and I think that might have part way to do with it is if you want to be taken serious as a filmmaker, you're not doing, you know, guys in rubber suits and <laughs> CG things. And you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so maybe it's partly that and it probably a little a little overdone and misguided. I feel badly for the artists and the, all the people that yeah. like the visual effects supervisors, the special effects people, they deserve to be recognized. They did a great job. And it, no knock on the movie, no knock on, I think I understand Christian Nolan is a fantastic filmmaker. He, he has to be to balance all of these things to create the movie he did. I just wish that the movie just could be perceived as, a, as an overall cinematic journey that used every tool, because I think it did. Like that's the truth. Like. The, that movie used every tool. Barbie used every tool. Like it's funny, yeah. it's Barbenheimer. In my opinion, those movies, those two movies, were the best of Hollywood. It really, they, in a lot of ways, like they they bucked a lot of trends. They innovated, but they also used practical things. And there's a lot of great acting in both those films. And there's a lot of great filmmaking, production design, and I think the visual effects helped those two movies be great. And I just wish that they were a little bit more recognized than they got, you know, that's all. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to mention Barbie as well, too, because, you know, it didn't get nominated. But it, it's interesting because you, when you're in Barbie's world, things look fake. But, <laughs> but that was kind of the point. That's kind of the point, right? Is that right? it's so, you know, made up place, right? I, I kind of, you know, it was kind of it was very fun. And uh, there wasn't really much that took you out of it. And, you know, even when they're like, crossing from the barbie world to the quote real world um there were a lot of expressive things in there and but it just kind of all worked within the philosophy of itself you yeah know, it, it's great it, it's really well done and like the the moving backgrounds and like the practical like you know the having the track of the tread of ground that comes by the wheels yeah, all of that stuff right. fantastic it's you know and i i wish they would be rewarded a little bit more like that's kind of like it's it, to me it's innovative to buck the trend to try yeah. something different. And not only that, like you're taking a risk. I applaud the people that take risks and try things. Cause like, it's not easy to be out there. And that's why Greta Gerwig is amazing for making that film to some degree, because it's a risky film and she owned it. Margot Robbie owned it. And I, I love that. And I think that's what we need in filmmaking to keep people, audiences coming back is risk-taking. And along that same vein, I don't know if I could just mention real quickly, uh, poor things. Um, because it uh it does try to kind of introduce these different worlds in a kind of childlike wonder because it's yeah. from the vantage point of someone who has a child brain right. and so it's very expressive you know not not photo real uh but that's okay because that's kind of the point as well and in its own way it's very similar to barbie in that way yes, in the way exactly that you it out. exactly yeah, yeah. and that's i don't know i just kind of like that i enjoy that so if you if you're trying to go for expressiveness you just sort of lean into that so the way that barbie and now poor things do that i think poor um, things is a fantastic film it's really enjoyable for me I, I really enjoyed watching that film and i think it has a vision that's the other thing about yes both both barbie and poor things the directors of both those films had a vision and the visual effects supported that vision and that's what's great about those two films i, I in my opinion i think and i agree with you wholeheartedly chris super cool expressive different it's almost Ali-esque in its portrayal yes. of these other worlds. It's super interesting and just a different take. It's a different take on things that you've seen before. And I, I applaud it. 
Well, I think it's very interesting that uh, both of those films, Barbie and Poor Things and Oppenheimer, are all nominated for production design. In fact, that's the episode we've got coming up next. (laughs) To what degree do you think the visual effects has gotten absorbed into the production design credit on those movies? Hmm. I, you know, I, I don't know. That's a good question. That is a really good question. You know, there, there, sometimes there is a little bit of a rivalry between the production designer and the visual effects supervisor and who designs what and at what point things need to be designed. But I, I would imagine in something like Poor Things, the production designer probably had a heavy hand in all of that. Yeah, I think I would think so. I think that both Barbie and and poor things, the production designer is the uh, is the most responsible for the vision of the look of those things, for sure. Yeah. I, I think there are times, especially as you get into post, if things get done more in post for some reason, then the, by that point, the production designer usually isn't on the show anymore. And so it falls to the visual effects department to, des, quote, design things, which I think is hotly debated, actually, in the film yeah. industry. You know, and rightfully so. Right. If the production designer is in charge of everything visual in the movie and things are being designed after that person is off, like there is a healthy debate to be had about the, what is right and what is wrong there and, and how to honor the vision of the production designer. Because I think that's what you have to do if you're in that position is honor the production designer, you know, and because they had a vision, he or she had a vision of what they felt the movie should look like, had the blessing of the director. And so it would be the responsibility of visual effects to carry through on that vision to the best of their ability. Well, the last question I want to ask you guys, and it does go back to the shortlist you mentioned. This year, I saw Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse on the list for visual effects. It didn't make the five, but it's placed on the shortlist. Is this a sign that we're going to see more animated films recognized in this space? Or where is that line just getting blurrier and blurrier? It appears to be getting blurrier and blurrier. And it was, I was at the Bake Off when they presented. There was a great presentation by Mike Lasker, the VFX supervisor from uh, uh, Spa and Spy, who represented that film. And uh, they made a point of like all the innovation that had to happen to create that movie. And all the tools are the same. The tools of, of live action visual effects and animated visual effects are the same. Like the, or they do the same things, the same type yeah. of things. There is a debate to be had. Now, I'm not going to fall on one side or the other of this. Does photorealism or a plate have anything to do with a visual effect versus an animated visual effect? Is that something we're talking about? And But the counter to that is this, that The Lion King, which is almost entirely CG, so it is animated, is not in the was not in the category for best animated film, but was in the category for best visual effects. So does that mean there is a line? And I've heard both sides of that debate. It, it, it totally gets blurry, right? Because if you think of Guardians of the Galaxy, where the, the, the core story is about a raccoon, and then you have Spider-Man, which is obviously an animated film, like where, where, where are we going, you know? Yes. And I, 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 it's going to get blurry and blurrier. Now, along with, with Spider-Man, what they're going to put up is not just the animated characters, right? You, you're going to throw that out because that's animated, but it's all the visual effects. It's all like, the visual effects, yes. It's, it's, you know, it's like going through the different dimensions. The world and building. All the, the world, yeah. yeah, all that stuff. Um, and what you would classically call a visual effect rather than just the performance of the animated characters. But but in the Guardians, though, it is the performance of the animated characters that get called. So 
it gets a little, it gets a little interesting. A counter to that would be this, that last year, Marcel the Shell, mostly live action plates, mostly live action and just, and I say just with the quotes, not to demean it, Marcel being the only animated aspect of that film was nominated for best animated film. I was it not, or was in the running for best animated film. And I love Marcel the Shell. I, I thought I found it very charming, you know, and I don't know if there was that much, uh, there probably was debate about whether it should be in that category of, yeah. you know, best animated film, considering that most of it was not animated, but the main character was. So I think that debate is going to be, go rage on for years yeah. to come as far as, and so you see it on both sides now. Yeah, the, li- the line is definitely getting blurrier and blurrier skin. All right, well, we'll put a pin in that. On that note, we'll call it a wrap, guys. Great having you both here. It was awesome, again, to talk to you, Skid. It was a fun year of movies. I think it's been a great year of movies, so it's been great to talk. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And I love talking about these movies and how they get made. Yeah, it's a, it's a great time. Thank you. I love talking about it as well, obviously. So glad you guys could join Listeners, I always appreciate your feedback. Tell us you love talking about the movies. You'll find my contact info at our website, blowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. The Oscar series will continue. This is episode three of 12. So if you enjoy what you hear, subscribe. You won't necessarily win your Oscar pool because we're not picking the winners, but you'll definitely sound like the smartest person in the party. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. To all of our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word. Thanks again from Below the Line.